Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 6. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you and let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel on uh, Sundays here at Calvary. And uh, for the last few weeks, we have been studying John 6. And in particular, one of Jesus' most famous discourses, the Bread of Life Discourse, reason it's called the bread of life discourse is because in it Jesus reveals that the manna that fell in the wilderness for those 40 years that Israel was wandering under the leadership of Moses that kept the children of Israel alive physically well Jesus said actually that was a type of him that he is the true bread that comes down from heaven to give life not physically he did that when we were born but to give us life eternal, spiritual life. Um, so, so far in our outline, and we'll finish it this morning, but uh, four main points. First of all, we saw the physical preoccupation of the multitude. Secondly, the divine declaration of the Savior. And we're working on the third one, uh, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders. Verse 48, Jesus called himself, he said, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, uh, that I, excuse me, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, of course, Jesus was speaking at this point to a group of unsaved religious leaders. These men were carnal. Again, they were unsaved. Because of that, they didn't hear spiritual things. They didn't really comprehend uh, what Jesus was saying, which was spiritual. And uh, they thought he was speaking literally. And so when he talked about himself being bread, well, bread is something you eat. And then he went on to say in verse 51, and the bread is my flesh. Uh, well, they assumed he was talking about cannibalism, and that uh, sent them into a confused frenzy. Verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, this discourse, guys, started outside, in or near the town of Capernaum, among the multitude that Jesus had fed the day before with bread uh, and fish and uh, a crowd of about 20,000 people. Uh, at one point now, the day is wearing on the next day, and the crowd is dwindling, so verse 59 tells us they eventually moved into the, the synagogue of Capernaum. And there another group engaged the Lord, a group of men who challenged Jesus and even condemned him over his claims that he had uh, been making. And this group John refers to as the Jews. That's his way of talking about the Jewish religious leadership, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. As we said last time, Jesus' words in, in verse 51 sent these guys over the edge. It drove them to distraction, but uh, he didn't back off. No, in fact, uh, the Lord doubled down on them. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, as we said last week, those are some pretty heavy words that have generated a great deal of controversy over the years as to what exactly the Lord, the Lord was saying here. And uh, last week, we looked at what he wasn't saying, okay? And um, I don't believe for a second he was saying what the Roman Catholic Church teaches he was saying, and that was to literally have eternal life. You had to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that, they believe, happens during the Mass when the wafer and the wine are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ through a process known as transubstantiation. Go online, you can listen to this from last week. And though, therefore, Catholics at the Eucharist is then transformed into the literal body and then the wine, the blood of Christ. And then it's ingested by the faithful, faithful Catholics, who believe it imparts to them eternal life. Now, I don't believe that that's what Jesus was talking about here. We talked about why we didn't, don't believe that last week. So you can, you can go online and listen to that. But, uh, but then, again, what, what, that's, he's not talking literally. I don't believe he is. I don't think he's talking about cannibalism, that to have eternal life, you've got to literally eat his body and drink his blood. But then what is he talking about? What is he talking about? In verse 53, when he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life, no spiritual life in you. Well, let me just state up front, so, you know, in case you're sitting on the edge of your chair waiting to hear what, you know, I, I believe he's really saying. Let me just state it up front, okay? Uh, I believe Jesus was speaking metaphorically. When he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to be saved, have eternal life, I believe he was speaking metaphorically of believing in him. But he said it in such a graphic way, in part, because he didn't want them to misunderstand the kind of faith he was talking about. We'll talk about that more at length in a moment. But right now, I believe those words were metaphorical. And last week we said that Jesus often used metaphors to describe himself. In John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. In John 15, he's going to say, I am the vine, the true vine. And then right here in John 6, he says that he is the bread of life. Now, don't forget the context. Context is very important. In the context of these verses, Jesus Christ has been declaring himself Messiah. That's true. But more than that, because John 6 contains the first of seven I am statements. We talked about this. I am is the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, first mentioned by God in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses said, you know, you're sending me to Pharaoh, but I don't even know your name. Who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God said, you tell him I am is sending you. So in John's gospel, he builds his gospel around seven I am statements that, lead, that uh, describe Jesus' divinity. I am the name of God, followed by a description of who he is. Right here in John 6, 48, he says, I am, think of the name of God, hyphen, the bread of life is the idea. See? So not only is he claiming to be Messiah, he's declaring his divinity. Declaring his divinity. But the people wanted some kind of a miracle or supernatural sign from him to prove his claims before they were willing to put their faith in him. Back up to verse 30. Therefore they said to him, 
What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now, they're thinking about him giving them bread every day like Moses did for 40 years. You fed us yesterday. That was great. What are you doing for us lately, though? Hey, we're hungry again, right? You know, our fathers, verse 31, 8, the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You want a sign, guys? I am the sign. I am the sign. You want bread from heaven? I am the bread from heaven. I've come down from the Father to give you not just bread physically to sustain your bodies. I'm the living bread that if you eat of me, you will live forever eternally, is the idea. I'm your sign. All right? Again, one more time. When he said that, to have eternal life, they had to eat his body and drink his blood. I, I believe with all my heart he was speaking figuratively, not literally. I think verse 63 bears that out. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, they're spiritual, not figurative. Excuse me, not literal. They're figurative. They're spiritual, okay? However, and don't miss this. Let's be careful we don't completely divorce Jesus' words from the idea of eating food since that was the context from which he brought forth this metaphor of himself being bread. There is definitely some parallels between eating physical food and believing in Jesus, the bread of life. I'll give you three. You can maybe come up with others, okay? First of all, eating food, it's interesting and important. He calls himself bread, okay? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He didn't call himself uh, caviar of a life. If he would have said, I'm the caviar and fine wine of life, we'd all be in trouble because only the richest people could, uh, you know. And so he wanted to use chapter 4, living water. Here in John 6, he's bread. Those are staples, right? Everybody on the planet has access to those things. Because salvation is for anyone, okay? Not the wealthy only or the super religious and so on. Okay, you get the idea. But uh, eating food, of which bread is a staple, is necessary for physical life, okay? And notice I said eating. Eating. A banquet table can be full of delicious foods, but uh, it won't, those foods won't nourish you no matter how intensely you stare at that food. You must eat to benefit from that food. The same is true with Jesus, the bread of life. I mean, a person can grow up hearing about Christ. They can uh, learn about Jesus in Sunday school, Awanas. They can admire him with all their heart. I know people that admire Jesus but are unsaved. They can even serve him in ministry. But none of that will, do you, will be of any value to you unless you partake, or as Jesus put it, eat of him and the idea is believing. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And the idea of tasting and trusting go hand in hand there. And I believe Jesus is, is uh, doing the same thing here. When he talks about eating of his flesh and so on, he's talking about believing in him. But not just with a superficial head knowledge. He's talking about a deep kind of a faith that goes beyond the superficial 
where you're really trusting in him. Number two, eating food is the response and the result of experiencing feelings of hunger. Uh, guys, hunger is the mechanism that God has built into our physical bodies that let us know when our bodies need to eat. Now, in America, we have really, you know, uh, we are pretty much craving stuff all the time. That's our problem. But, I mean, this, though we God actually designed the body, when the hunger pangs start, you realize it's time to get some meat, right? Just as the outer man, the physical man, need food, needs food to stay healthy, so does the inner man or the soul need food to remain emotionally healthy. Jesus is to the soul what food is to the body. Uh, in other words, essential for life. But listen, while physical hunger is easy to identify, we all know that pain in our stomach, right? That's easy. We know we have to eat physical food. The inner hunger of the soul isn't so readily identified with a need for Jesus. Some people go for years trying to fill the inner hunger of their soul with the stuff of this world. We studied in John chapter 4, a woman of, of Samaria, right? And as the conversation progressed, Jesus engaged her at a literal well. She had come to draw water. He waited for her. He knew she was coming. Engaged her in a conversation where he explained to her that, you know, this physical water that she's going to drink from, is going to, you know, she's going to thirst again. And he basically said, anything of this world that you try to stuff into the void in your soul that is hungering for God or thirsting for God, uh, nothing the world has that you can stuff into that void is going to satisfy you, right? He said what you need, and, and, and it, we go on in the story, it tells us that she was empty inside in her soul, and she tried to fill it with human relationships. So she had been married and divorced five times and now was living with a man. And Jesus said to her, basically, I'll paraphrase, what you're experiencing is a thirst in your soul for God, for me. I'm the living water. If you drink of me, in other words, if you get saved, I'll be inside. You'll never thirst again. You'll be satisfied, right? She needed salvation. And she received Christ and was saved. And what does it say? Immediately after she received Christ and was saved, what did she do with her water pot? Put it down left it. That means you'd never get thirsty for water ever again? Of course not. It was a metaphor the Holy Spirit was using there. The thing that she had brought to quench her physical thirst was being used by the Holy Spirit now to tell us that her real thirst had been satisfied and nothing of the world was needed to satisfy her any further because it couldn't, right? Look, no, and, and let me just say this. Even after a person has received Jesus by faith and is saved, they still need to constantly feed on him if they're going to remain spiritually healthy. And you do that by feeding on the word. Verse 63 again, right? Uh, he's talking about, you know, it, the words that I speak are life. The word of God brings life. It brings initial salvation life, but it also then you need to feed on it every day as a Christian to remain strong spiritually. Look, for a Christian, spiritual hunger manifests itself in a variety of ways, all right? We're talking about Unbelievers, yeah, they're thirsting for God. But once we accept Christ, we can still hunger. If you Look, if you don't maintain a close walk with the Lord, where you're feeding on Him constantly by staying in the Word, you're going to start getting hungry spiritually. Now, there's no pain in the stomach. 
uh, like when you get physically hungry, that indicates that. But there are other things that happen, and you sometimes don't even realize these are spiritual hunger pangs. But things happen. These are uh, come in a variety of different ways. As, uh, you, spiritual hunger can take the form of emptiness, restlessness, sadness, anxiety, fear, loneliness, and basically a desire to fill the void now with material possessions and maybe uh, physical pleasures because often we don't realize that that is a spiritual hunger telling us we're not staying close to Jesus. We're not feeding on him. Now Solomon's a good example of this and I don't have time to get into the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We've done that a few weeks ago. But uh, Solomon was a believer. Started off well. Uh, he, was a, he, was a, he loved the Lord and all. Uh, and, uh, and all as a young king, he, he did all that he needed to do, and God, he got close to the Lord. But at one point, for whatever reason, he kind of backslides. And for most of his life, he lived in a backslidden state. He talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, how that during this period, he was hungering in his soul, but he thought that, you know, he just needed to make more money. Uh, so he you know, gave himself over to, to making more money, he started a business. Even as a king, he had an ex import-export business, made more money, and so on. But he, uh, he thought, well, maybe life is all about partying. And, and so he gave himself to partying and wine, women, and song, and, and, and all these things. You can read about in the book of Ecclesiastes he pursued over the course of most of his life to fill the void that only God could fill. At the end of his life, he comes back to the Lord. And basically says at the end of Ecclesiastes, here's the, the, the bottom line. Stay close to God, draw close, to, live for him. That's how you stay full inside. Take it from a guy who's supposed to be a wise guy, okay? I did some pretty stupid things for most of my life, looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. Guys, look, no outward possession or pleasure will satisfy that emptiness or longing within only communion with Jesus. When I say communion, I mean that oneness, that fellowship with Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the only way that emptiness inside is going to be satisfied. And number three, eating food is a personal action that no one else can do for you. Uh, someone else can feed you, but no one else can eat for you. One author put it well, he said, and I quote, there is no such thing as eating by proxy. If I am to be nourished, I must myself eat. Standing by and watching others eat will not satisfy or supply my needs. So, dear reader, no one can believe in Christ for you. The preacher cannot, your loved ones cannot, and you may have witnessed others receiving Christ as their Lord. You may later hear their ringing testimonies, how Christ has changed their lives. You may be struck by the unmistakable change wrought in their lives, but unless you have eaten the bread of life, unless you have personally received Christ as yours, it has all, it, uh, it has all availed you nothing. He quotes Jesus, If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The author says, Divinely simple and yet wonderfully full is this figure of eating. So again, when Jesus talked about eating his body and drinking his blood, he was speaking in metaphorical terms. And, but he, wanted, and he was really just really talking about believing in him. Believe, but again, and the reason he stated it this way, 
because he wanted to drive home he was not talking about just superficial head knowledge. So a lot of folks who believe, I did before I got saved, I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, Savior of the world, died for my sins, rose again the third day, ascended back to the Father. I believed all that. I had head knowledge, but I hadn't, make it, I hadn't made a commitment to Christ. Hold on to that. We'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, we know that James, in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. You can have all the right facts in your head about Christ. That's not going to save you. I mean, that's the first step. That's what the gospel is all about, getting you the information. What you do with the information is vitally important that you take the next step and bring it into your heart and make a commitment to Christ. That's what's called saving faith. Saving faith. The difference between superficial faith and saving faith, listen, to use Jesus' metaphor here, is the difference between believing food is good and then actually eating it. When you actually eat food, what happens? It enters your stomach where it is digested. All the nutrients are broken down and released through your bloodstream to every part of your body, assimilated to every part of your body, and that food literally becomes one with you. One with you. And the same is true when a person believes on Jesus with saving faith. Saving faith is believing on Jesus, listen, to the point of commitment, where he literally becomes one with you. That's communion. This food becomes one with our body when we eat it. Or to put it another way, guys, the difference between superficial faith and saving faith is the difference between religion and relationship. We'll come back to that at the end of this study. Let me just say this. Jesus doesn't want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. These men in the synagogue of Capernaum who were religious men, they had religion. But verse 64, Jesus says, but you don't believe. You don't really believe. Jesus doesn't want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And that brings us, guys, to the last point in our outline, what I'm calling the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. First of all, verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Again, he's talking about eating his body, drinking his blood. Come on, man. That's a hard saying. I don't get what he's talking about. And I believe Jesus had purposely talked to them in this Bread of Life discourse using difficult, graphic, and even scandalous language. Why? Because he was seeking to separate the true disciples from the false disciples. Something he started to do at this point in his ministry about a year from the cross. In fact, it's around the same time we read in Matthew 13. He started to do something very different from what he'd been doing for the last two and a half years in his teaching. He started to teach the people in parables. This was so troubling, it's such a departure from the norm, that that evening in the house they were staying in, the disciples asked him about it. Lord, why are you teaching the people in parables? And let me paraphrase what the Lord said. Because the time has come to start separating the true from the false. You guys, you have good hearts. You have open hearts. You not only hear what I'm saying, you listen. 
You understand because your heart is open and the Spirit of God has given you that understanding. But their hearts are hardened. They're only following me for what I give them. And the time has come when in about a year I'm going to be going to the cross and you're going to be taking over the ministry that I've started when I resurrect and ascend back to the Father. I need to start focusing on my true disciples. I need to start building into them. I mean, I love the multitudes. They're wonderful. I mean, I love them. I want them saved. But at this point, I need to start transitioning over to the people that are genuinely saved, really my disciples, and start feeding into and building into you guys because in a very short time, I'm going to be back with the Father and you need to continue the work I have begun. That was the idea. Keep that in mind. So verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Guys, when it says that many of his disciples there in verse 60, it's a reference that included both true and false disciples. In other words, Jesus had many disciples. Some were genuine, but many others are what we would call Jesus junkies. Jesus junkies. Those who followed him for entertainment. What do you mean? Oh, they liked him. Who doesn't want to watch a miracle, right? Who doesn't want to watch him put down the Pharisees? Oh, that's fun. And the scribes. He's the best show in town, this guy. Or they were hanging around with him because uh, he gave him free food. Or... You know, for whatever else they could get from him, just like today. There's a lot of Jesus junkies in the church today, isn't there? And there is because pastors have encouraged it by telling people, come to Jesus and he'll give you whatever you want. Just have enough faith. Best house in town, nicest car, successful business. You'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, you'll be a fabulous life. Follow Jesus for the goodies. Jesus junkies, right? But look, Jesus didn't want large crowds back then, even as he doesn't want today, just for the sake of having large crowds. He wanted sincere hearts. Sincere hearts. And it seems, guys, that it was these carnally-minded Jesus junkies, unbelievers, really, who were following him but were not saved, again, verse 64, that were offended. The Greek is scandalizo. It means a scandalized, okay? They were scandalized by his claims to have come down from heaven as the bread of life, to which he responded in verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend? Okay, be where he was before. Look, the point Jesus seems to be making here is uh, that he is saying to them, if they were scandalized because he said he had come down from heaven, God in human form, Actually, we could say traumatized. Um, how much more scandalized will they be when he ascends back to his Father in heaven after his death and resurrection? And for that matter, uh, how much more will they be traumatized in the day of judgment when they stand before him and have to give an account to him as their righteous judge? See, that is ultimately what he has in mind, I believe, when he said this. Look, when you come to church, if the pastor is teaching faithfully from the Word of God, guess what? Your toes are going to get stepped on once in a while. You're going to be offended. That's good. 
if you're not living the way God wants you to live in some area, you shouldn't be made to feel like everything is fine. You should, you know, you, you should be offended once in a while. And I don't want to offend people just for the sake of being offensive. But when I, as I teach the word verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, invariably, inevitably, I'm going to step on some toes, right? Um, some people get mad. It's like the old saying goes, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yipes is probably the one that got hit, right? Look, I'm just lobbing these truths out there. If you're getting hit and you're upset, take it up with God. But let me just say this to you. It's better for you to come to church and hear God's truth taught and you get offended where you have time to think about it. Maybe I am living wrong and you have time to change, repent, and get your life right with God. Isn't that better than waiting until the day of judgment when you stand before him and hear the Lord Jesus tell you all the things you were, you, you never accepted him and, so, and then there's no time? Talk about being traumatized, uh, but it's too late to change, right? I would rather teach the Word of God verse by verse and have a small church than to teach happy talk that never steps on toes, to placate, to fill the pews up, but not be faithful as Paul was faithful in, in, in declaring the whole counsel of God. But once again, guys, Jesus is trying to weed out the false or the phony disciples from the true so you could focus on those disciples that were genuine. That was his strategy. That's why I've called this final point the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. That was his strategy. He wanted to now separate out the phony disciples. He didn't have any more time to really focus on them. He had given them the truth of God for two and a half years. They hadn't gotten saved by this time. Now they were just sucking energy and time that he desperately needed to focus on his, his true disciples. They were going to be taking over the ministry when he went back to the Father again about a year from the cross at this point. And so verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who uh, would betray him. And he said, uh, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it has been granted to him by my Father. You can go back and listen to the teaching that we did around verse 44, because we went into this in detail. But the bottom line is, Jesus is saying here, look, I know those who belong to me. I know those who are mine. Well, didn't Paul say this in 2 Timothy 2.19? He said, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, the Lord knows those who belong to him. You say, well, great. I mean, I know God knows. He knows everything. But how do I know if I belong to him or not? Well, at the end of that verse says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And the idea is, if you are really a child of God, you'll prove it by departing from the old life you used to live. Again, you can look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. John said, you want to know how you can know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil? Do you keep God's commandments? Not perfectly. Nobody does. But is that your heart now? 
I mean, are you living? Because I know before I got saved, I mean, the goal of my life was not to keep God's commandments. It was to satisfy my desires. And I'm not proud to tell you that I did things that hurt others simply to benefit myself. But once I got saved, that all changed. That all changed. And now I desire to live for the Lord. I desire to keep His commandments. Keeping His commandments doesn't get me saved. It just proves I am saved. Verse 66, But from that time, many of His disciples went back. Now again, remember, He had many false disciples. Many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Now, guys, in the Greek, it comes through very endearing in my mind. In the Greek, Jesus' question comes across this way. And in the Greek, you can structure a sentence so that you know a person is looking for a no response. I'll paraphrase. He said to them, do you want to leave me too? I don't want you to. In other words, are, are you, turning to the twelve, are you also going to leave me? I don't want you to. We see the humanity of Christ coming through, right? You know, he was a human being. Yes, God incarnate, but a human being as well. And he was subject to times where he needed his guys to come around him and encourage him. Of course, closer, the closer they got to the cross, the more he needed them the less they were there for him. Now, he drew a strength from his father, don't get me wrong. But the night before the cross, in the upper room, before they were going to eat the Passover meal, the night when especially he needed them to come around him and encourage him, they're so self-focused, they're arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's why he got up, girded himself with a towel, took a a pitcher of water, poured it into a basin, stooped down and began to wash their feet. The lowliest task of the lowliest servant to show them if I, your Lord, can wash your feet, you need to wash each other's feet. You need to put yourself in a lowest position to be a servant to all. That's what Jesus wants from all of us. Not arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, but getting down and being the greatest servant of the kingdom. Verse 68, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? So Jesus said, you know, to his twelve, you guys aren't going to go away also, are you? I don't want you to. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know what? We kind of pick on Peter. You know, impulsive Peter, sticking his foot in his mouth, Peter, that kind of thing. I'll tell you what, right here, this is one of Peter's shining moments. With these words, Peter proves he was a true disciple because he expresses the heart of a true disciple. A true disciple, well, let me just say this, um, true disciples of Jesus at times, may face such difficult trials and adversities that honestly, from a human standpoint, we are not sure if we can go forward. 
But we know one thing for sure. We can't go backward. We can't go backward. True disciples have been delivered from the world. And once you've really been delivered from the world, you never want to go back to the world. That life is gone, right? It's only, listen to me now, it's only those people who are not genuinely saved that come to church, call themselves disciples of Christ. They're the ones who want to go back to the world when times get tough or God doesn't do things uh, their way. Reminds me of the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt in the Old Testament, right? These were not believers either. But they attached themselves to God's people because who wants to hang out with the losers? God just beat the snot out of Pharaoh and his whole team. So let's go with the, with the winners. But they were the first, the mixed multitude, who complained in the wilderness, who, who uh, uh, murmured, complained, didn't want the manna, wanted to go back to Egypt for the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, that kind of stuff. Why do they want to go back to Egypt all the time? Because that's what their, where their heart was. That's what their nature was. Phony disciples, guys, listen to me, are always wanting to go back to the world because that is their nature. Turn to Peter chapter, 2 Peter 2 for a second quickly. We talked about this last Wednesday at study. So if you weren't at Wednesday study, go online and listen to the whole teaching because we did much more in depth. But I want to touch on it because Jesus is basically touching on this very issue here in John 6, okay? Now, actually, I'll, let me paraphrase the first part of, uh, of 2 Peter 2, verses 20 to 22. He's basically talking about those folks who had come to church, and because they were now hanging out with Christians, they heard the gospel. They were starting to get set free from some of the old uh, lifestyle choices. You know, the Bible says that uh, bad company corrupts good morals. But good company puts a kibosh on immoral living. You hang out with Christians, you're going to start picking up their heart on things. But here's the thing. For those who are checking out Jesus, right, come to church, they're tired of the way, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and just has beat them to a pulp. And, and they see Christians that they know that have got, you know, people they have gotten saved are Christians, and their lives are changing. So, so they start coming to church to check out Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, right? And they start hanging out with Christians. And they start escaping some of the pollutions of the world, as the way Peter puts it. You know what the problem is? If they don't go all the way and really receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, guess what? Hanging out with Christians, the novelty of that eventually wears off. And they go back to the world because that is still their nature. They have not received Christ. That's what Peter said. He said, verse 22, but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow or a pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And guys, we said this Wednesday, the reason a dog eats its own vomit and a pig, though it's been washed and cleaned up, returns to wallow in the mud hole is because it's the nature of dogs and pigs to act this way. Again, we made the point Wednesday. Look, if you live on a farm, you got one pig and it's like a pet. But the thing is always loving to hang out in the mud hole. 
It rolls around in it. It gets it in its snout. It just loves to eat some of it. That's its environment, right? That's its nature. But of course, you think that's gross because you think of this thing as a pet. You want the thing to live with you in the house. So you pull the thing out of the mud hole, hose it off, clean it up, maybe sprinkle a little perfume on the thing, bring it into the house. You're as happy as a clam because now your little pet is with you in your environment. Leave the door open once, and that thing's going to make a beeline for the mud pit. Why? Because that is its nature. That's all it knows. And that's Peter's point. The reason some people who come to church and check out Jesus and start hanging with Christians, hear the gospel, begin to change a little bit, they experience what we call Wednesday a reformation that stops short of true regeneration, saving faith, where they're now saved. The reason they go back to the world eventually because they haven't received Christ. Peter said when you receive Jesus, uh, 2 Peter 1.4, you receive a new nature. You're called the nature of God. Paul said all things pass away, all things become new. And you, now you, you know, the, the old things you used to like to do, go to the bar and drink and uh, sleep around and, and take drugs and whatever. Now, what do you like to do? I go to church. I like to read the Bible. I like to worship God. <laughs> you know, and your unbelieving friends think you've lost your mind. But you, what you have gotten is a new nature. This is one of the most powerful evidences whereby we know that Jesus has moved in. Do we have changed attitudes? Jesus specifically mentions one of these phony disciples to finish his bread of life discourse. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Now in verses 68 and 69, Peter used the word we to describe all the disciples, all twelve. Okay? But here in verse 70, the Lord corrects him and says, Peter, uh, don't be so certain that every one of these disciples that I've chosen are truly saved, truly my disciples don't be so confident it's true that the lord had chosen all 12 to be disciples but he also knew one of them would never be one of his true disciples he was the son of perdition he called him later on son of the devil he was not a true disciple the lord knew that judas iscariot was going to betray him he knew that judas never really accepted him as his personal lord and savior listen judas hung out with jesus right for three and a half years, he hung out with, he literally lived in the same house that Jesus lived in. I mean, he spent three and a half years serving Jesus in ministry, but he never had made a commitment to Christ. There are a lot of people in churches across this nation who, for a lack of a better term, are dating Jesus. They're dating Jesus. They like to be around him. They like when he helps them with problems, right? But they just never go to the next level where they make a commitment to him. Gals, you ever date a guy like that? I mean, he, he loved to date you. Now, you thought eventually this guy was going to pull a ring out and make a commitment to you, right? But maybe, maybe you dated this guy for four, five, six, seven years. Who knows? He sure liked to date you, but he didn't love you enough to make a commitment to you. 
And eventually, what did you do? You probably broke it off, right? That's, that was Judas with Jesus. He had a superficial faith, but not saving faith. Guys, he had religion, but never a relationship with Christ. And the tragedy was, and we're bringing this to a close right now, but the tragedy was he was chosen by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. Can you imagine that? One of the 12 apostles allowed to be around Jesus nonstop for three and a half years, empowered by the Lord to go out and preach the gospel and heal sick people and cast out demons. Judas could have had one of the most glorious eternities of any person who has ever lived. But he was too selfish. He only looked at Jesus for what Jesus was going to give to Judas, a place in the kingdom of high honor. And so he wound up betraying Christ and committing suicide. Instead of being, having the most glorious eternity possible, his life serves, serves as a solemn warning to all would-be followers of Christ who come to church and hang with Jesus who even profess faith in him, maybe even serve him in some ministry, but are too selfish and worldly to actually make a commitment to him where he becomes their Lord and they become his bride. Guys, as we have said repeatedly during the course of this series, the Bread of Life, the theme of the Bread of Life discourse is eternal life. Jesus mentions it eight times. Eight times. Nothing more important than eternal life. He said in John 10, verse 10, this is why I have come, that people might have eternal life, have life and have it more abundantly. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath or judgment of God is upon them. I would be remiss if I didn't end this series by asking you, do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? Now, whenever I ask people that question, there's always going to be one or two who say, well, I think so. I'm not sure, but I, I think so. Well, are you in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ or not? I mean, you know, have you made a commitment to him? Well, I, I think so. I, I hope I, I hope so. Let's come up at it from another direction, okay? What if I asked you if you were married? If you had made a commitment to another person in marriage and you said, well, I hope so. I, I think so. How would your spouse feel? Look, if you're married, you know you're married. I got married 40 years ago to this woman. And I still remember the weather, the moment I said I do, what I was wearing, who was around me, the location of where we were standing. When you go through something like marriage, when you commit your life to somebody, it's such a profound decision. You never forget the details. If you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, which the Bible likens to marriage commitment, you know you've done that. If you're saying, I think so, I hope so, you probably haven't made that commitment to him. 
And I'm not really yelling at you, I'm just passionate to get you to listen to me. You're not making me mad, I'm just saying. Come on, listen. This is what Jesus was talking about here. He lived there with Judas. He had a guy that was with him for three and a half years who claimed to be one of his disciples and so on. Can't hang with Jesus more closely than that. Yet Judas wasn't saved. And is being used by the Holy Spirit as a warning for every church-going would-be Jesus follower. Are you playing games? Or are you genuine? Oh, I'm offended by what you're saying. Good. Good. My goal is not to offend you, but it is to shake you up. Because better to be offended now. Examine yourself and realize, no, maybe I am playing games with Christ. Maybe I haven't made a commitment to him. And get on your knees before the day is out, repent, and really receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Better to do that now while there's still time than to stand before him on the day of judgment and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Just saying, right? Very important. Bread of life discourse, one of the most important of all of Jesus' teachings. Take it to heart. Don't let it fall on deaf ears. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down to die for the sins of the whole world. Anyone can be saved. But Lord, please, touch those who don't really know you, but maybe think they do. That, Lord, they would not let this day pass before they would get their heart right with you. That they would make a commitment to you. Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you that you've given us time. And please, Lord, continue to bless these studies in your word. For we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand.